Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster and writer, but for the purposes of these podcasts, I am the person who will be really digging into artworks with you, pulling out the codes and meanings, trying to uncover the clues and make sense of them. Every week I'm joined by a fellow investigator and today I'm joined by my dear friend, Sunday Times art critic and fellow broadcaster, maker of amazing art films, Valdemar Januszczak. Fellow Pole as well, I should add. <laughs> Excellent pronunciation. Thank you for that already. Oh, well, it, we are going to have a very exciting discussion today. We are doing a big hit, aren't we? We're doing Hieronymus Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights. This is something you've worked closely with, isn't it, this image? Yes, I mean, last year was the centenary of Bosch's death, and um, there was an awful lot of uh, uh, exhibitions and publications and books and articles written about him. And also, I was making a series for the BBC about the Renaissance, and frankly, I could have made the whole series about Bosch, as far as I was concerned, (laughs) because there's so much in him um, that is not only of interest, but that's also incredibly sort of telegenic and fascinating. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I couldn't help but focus on him. Uh, And it was a a marvellous journey of exploration for me because uh, the people often don't think of Bosch as a Renaissance artist. And because his imagery is so scary and vivid and and surreal, um, they tend to to have him down as a a late medieval artist in a slightly disparaging manner, you know, as if late medieval means something less than (laughs) Renaissance. Well, I don't buy into that, you know. um, Bosch was uh, almost an exact contemporary of Leonardo da Vinci's. They're born a couple of years apart. We should give his dates, shouldn't we? Well, indeed. So Bosch was, I think, 1450 to 1516. So right, right at the heart of, of the Renaissance. And Leonardo was, was 1452 to 1519. So, you know, they could have been brothers in arms mm-hmm. right from the heart of the Renaissance. And we should see his work not as something lesser or something that's tacked onto another tradition or or, 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 or something that, that paved the way for anything else. You know, these are great Renaissance achievements that happen to come in a different style from the one we usually associate with the Renaissance. But that doesn't make them in any way less of an achievement. I couldn't not agree more. I mean, I think we both... Uh are lovers of the medieval and and what is so interesting is the way that I suppose art historians draw a line in the sand and say that suddenly everybody wakes up and it's the renaissance but uh, but you have these these wonderful artists who 
who meld traditions, blend between the two. And actually, Bosch is firmly within the timings of what we would call the Renaissance. Uh, but he's Northern Renaissance, isn't he? So he is working in and around sort of Northern Belgium, is that right? Yeah, so he's working in what is modern Belgium, but right, yeah, the north end of it, the bit where it's about to become Holland That's nowadays. Um, the Netherlands in those days. And in this fabulous little town called Surtigenbosch. <laughs> Um, which I'm delighted to be able to pronounce properly there. Um, that took me a whole of year years practice to do that. <laughs> but of course, he gets his name from there, Sertegen Bosch, and then you get the Bosch bit at the end. So he's Hieronymus from from Bosch. Mm. Um, and we tend to think of him these days as this isolated figure, this kind of one-off wild genius working away there in northern Europe while the rest of Europe was doing something different. Uh, but actually, he was part of a large family workshop. He was someone who was employed busily by the surrounding aristocracy and the church. Um, so he was a, a, the leader of a big studio. There's lots of um, Bosch family members that work in it. Now, and if you look around the museums of the world, you know, you'll find scores of seeming Hieronymus Bosch paintings um, because... He left behind um, not just a legacy in terms of stylistic influence, but all these other people who'd learnt to paint from him mm. in his studio and in his family. So it was a busy, ongoing, successful enterprise. He wasn't some kind of one-off loony at work in the Renaissance. He was somebody that people liked, admired, bought, sold, paid a lot of money for. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the example we're looking at, Garden of Earthly Delights, it's a triptych. It's a huge commission. And it's being commissioned by a community that understand and appreciate this art. It's uh, Now we tend to zoom in on aspects of Bosch and say, isn't it wacky? Isn't it crazy? It's like Dali. It's surrealist. But actually, this was totally in keeping with the tastes of his community, presumably. It, indeed it was. Although, since you mentioned Dali, let me just quickly interject and say um, that the influence of Bosch on contemporary art, on 20th century art, is indescribably large. I mean, you know, if you compare Leonardo again to Bosch, you know, tell me, name me one artist who was influenced by Leonardo da Vinci who actually did something in the 20th century or the 21st that changed things. No, you can't. There isn't anybody. You know, uh, Leonardo belongs to this sort of distant dream of civilization and the Renaissance. Bosch, I mean, you could quite honestly say he invented surrealism yeah you know that the amount of people who have been in some way influenced by this sort of crazy vision of his mm -hmm. um you know would fill an art history book and you only have to walk around and look at advertising hoardings today to know what a big impact he continues to have mm -hmm. but in his own time um he was very much a member of this important little town important community he belonged to this um this this rather strange grouping called the illustrious Society of the Blessed Mary. Yeah. So they've always, because illustrious societies always sound a bit creepy, you know, they, they've, <laughs> they've been they've been passed off as, as some kind of medieval cult almost, you know, as a wacky band of people from Sertig and Bosch. But they were, they were like a kind of rotary club society. They did lots of good. They were a charitable organisation. Sertig and Bosch was a very, very religious town. I mean, it's, uh, I read a statistic somewhere that, that something like 20% of the populace was either a, you know, a monk or a it's One in or a 19. Nun. I read the there same. One in 19 was a member of a religious community. Well, there you are. So it was a completely religious organisation, which of course immediately should also warn us to look at the Garden of Earthly Delights as a religious image mm. and not some of the other crazy ideas that have been proposed for it. Um, I mean, I remember reading that, that you know, in the 60s, there was a lot of people who said he must have been using some kind of proto-LSD. Yep, yep. Chewing, 
chewing mushrooms, otherwise he could never have done this. Go I read on. one where the berries were supposed to be hallucinating, the equivalent of magic mushrooms, and that exactly. Bosch is actually completely off his head while he's making yeah. this. I think that we can possibly put that in the in the mad in book the draw. Yeah. Well, there, there, there was the, the he was a member of the Adamites. They yes, said, the Adamites who yes. were sort of free lovers again. I mean, you know, the sort of people who turned up at Woodstock, <laughs> and, the, the, and, and indeed, this looks like the Woodstock festival if you see it through those. Through those eyes. But, but the Adamite thing, actually, it gathered quite a lot of support. There was a lot of people wrote about it. And, and the Adamites, again, we've talked about these illustrious societies sounding a bit creepy. The Adamites were supposedly another group, but they were done by the 1410s. But they were supposed to engage in, in lots of carnal pleasure, loads of sex, because that was getting truer to Adam's state. Is that right? That's absolutely right, yes. I mean, it, it really is Woodstock thinking. It's, mm. You whip off your clothes, you eat lots of druggy things, and you have free love everywhere. <laughs> and there were serious propositions that this is what Bosch is painting. I mean, to me, it, it, it's, 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 it's almost beyond understanding that anyone could look at this kind of work and think about it that way, okay. as if, as if, you know, the, the 1490s were ever going to be like the 1960s. <laughs> um, yeah, but anyway, that's what's happened to him. He's, he was taken over for a while by all sorts of crazy people who imagined his work to be something it wasn't. Um, and only now, I think, are we once again, you know, settled down a bit. We can able, we're able to see it again for what it was. And of course, what it chiefly was, was intensely religious, intensely moralistic. Um, and there's no other way to approach the uh, Garden of Earthly Delights except as a fiercely religious image. I'm glad you said that. I really, I think it's very important to park some of the more wacky theories about Bosch initially, because I mean, even the connection with surrealism is tenuous, of course, because we don't have psychoanalysis until the 20th century. So he would not have thought he was exploring his subconscious or looking into his mind in any way here. And I think you're absolutely right. Almost everything in Bosch's work can be taken back to some Christian fable, some uh, example from the Bible or from, from folk folk stories that are connected with Christian ideas, aren't they? Of course, yes. And um, this society of the illustrious Society of Mary, mm. um, you know, uh, they had their own chapel in, in the cathedral in Sertigen Bosch. They were there. They had these religious meetings. They employed a whole lot of... Lo a lot of the people we know that who belonged to the society were musicians who were essentially composers uh, involved in, in, in putting the Bible to music, setting the Psalms to music. So it was a, very much a, a traditional religious society that went out and did a lot of good where it could. Uh, but it was also, much like the Rotary Club, um, it was also a society that it was quite a good thing to get into it because all the best people in town belonged to it. So Bosch was unusual in being an artist who was invited to be a member of the society because most of the people were sort of aldermen and councillors and the, 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 richest, the richest folk in Sertingen Bosch. So for him, obviously, it was also a way of gaining some power um, within the society and, and a sign of, of, indeed, the position he occupied within the town as a very important member of, of the community. Mm. And and when we talk about this particular triptych, then um, this was commissioned in order to be put into the chapel. Well, there's an argument about that, as as there is with everything <laughs> with this. But I mean, the, there are some people who say that it was a private commission, meaning uh, it wasn't anything to do with with the church. It was just commissioned by a, you know a rich uh, a duke, a local duke who who wanted it for his own private joy. Uh, but but I mean, uh, the argument against that is that we do know there was a copy of it in the cathedral in in Sertigenbosch in the private. 
chapel of the illustrious brotherhood. So it may not have been the original, but there was certainly uh, a version of it there. So it, it would have, where would it have been? Well, the only place, if, you, if you've been to the chapel at Sertigimbos, the only place it could have been is above the altar. <laughs> so this was an altarpiece. You know, right. this was an altarpiece. And of course it was. It's a triptych. You know, it, 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 it would have been opened for special moments. Uh, and when it was opened, that's times like Easter, obviously, most importantly, at Christmas, at feast days, at saint days, at days where the martyrs were celebrated, it would have proposed this wonderful moment of theatre mm. because the outside is so different from the inside. Well, this is it. Should we, should we start to look closer? Because yes. I think I remember a sequence from your wonderful BBC4 series where you were with it in the Prado and you saw it open. It was a beautiful moment, actually, very dramatic. It is very dramatic and uh, and that's what you get if you have that if you imagine it in location, this because the outside um, is, is 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 technical grisaille, you know, yeah. which is um, basically grey paint, which looks a bit like like stonework or something. Um, but it shows this beautiful sort of crystal ball um, inside which the world is sort of being made in black and white, in blurry black and white. And if you look at the top corner of the outside, so the two panels closed, all you see is this round, weird, mysterious shape. And in the top corner, there's there's God. Yeah. And the words are emerging from from God's mouth, which are the words. If I may take my Bible here a moment, Yanina. you see, you're a good medieval scholar to have uh, your Bible to hand at all times. I've got my King James, <laughs> and it's carefully opened on Psalm 33, Psalm 33, chapter nine. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. In other words. God uttered the word and the world was made. Mm. And that's what's written on the outside of, of, of this fantastic, um, fantastic triptych. Mm. So we're talking about, as it were, the beginning, the very beginning, when the Almighty creates the earth. And then the inside, when we finally open it up, and it opens up like a kind of brilliant flower suddenly emerging from grey into full colour, this massive sort of cinematic triptych behind opens up, and there we get the story taking place across the three scenes of what happens to us, as it were, once God had created us and created our world. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, one of the things that really bothers me about the way Bosch is studied is that he's often zoomed in on, and there's particular little caricatures or, or you know, people from hell in particular. Everybody loves to put those on postcards. But very rarely do we see the outside of the triptych. We see it closed. And mm. I think that the outside is stunning. I personally really like the Grisel. I like the the dullness, the greyness of this. Um, and what we're looking at on the outside is presumably part of the creation story, as you say, because the, the psalms will illuminate it. Possibly day three when the waters are being separated. But but it's um it's stunning and it's three-dimensional this sphere that opens up and then the you're absolutely right the thing that hits you is the color isn't it mm. once you get inside and the scale of this thing i mean it's huge we should give the proportions so it's um two meters 20 by about three meters 90 it's it's a big old thing isn't it, it? it's it's when you walk into it you feel as if you're walking into a, a landscape you know mm. so it, it, it has a sort of physical scale that impacts on you um but yes i mean it, it, you absolutely have to see it as an object that has this that story its storyline unfolds as an artwork not from left to right but from beginning to end from, you know from the front when you open this amazing crystal ball as it were of the earth this this inchoate, gassy, black and white earth that's before us mm -hmm. in this beautifully painted sort of almost alchemical glass vessel. 
And then that's opened up, and inside you've got this gorgeous kind of um, full-colour picture, which then turns black on the edge with hell, but uh, we'll come to that. Absolutely. Oh, this is exciting, because I think that that's, again, it gives us this idea of the, I love this description of the sphere going in, because then once you're inside... So we should move ourselves in. I should explain we have images on the table all around us, bits of bits of the uh, the, the triptych. Um, but there are shapes, spheres, globules, water. Some of these themes are continued. Um, and we should explain, I suppose, the, what the three panels represent. So paradise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, triptychs are obviously, you know, common in, in Renaissance and, and late medieval religious art. Um, but they normally function in a different way. I mean, most triptychs, you've got, for example, most commonly, you'd have a crucifixion in the middle, and on the on, on one side you might have the female donors, on the other side the male donors, or a, a set of saints who are appropriate on one side, another set. So they function um, as a, you know, the centre is the centre, as it were. The centre and, and the arms have a kind of oh, subsidiary role. But that's not how Bosch's triptychs function. <laughs> Bosch's triptychs function as a, as a sort of cinematic unrolling from left to right. In other once you're in there, once you've opened the door, um, they, they, their meaning changes from the left-hand panel to the central panel to the left-hand panel. So you have this unraveling of meaning across the picture. And the, each panel has a different message, and each panel is important in its own ways. So obviously with the Bosch, uh, on the left we have to start with the first panel, um, which is the sort of tall, thin one, sort of door-shaped panel, uh, on which we see the creation of Adam and Eve. That's, that's basically what it is. So immediately, you know, we're brought to this moment when God, who's rather Jesus-y in, 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 he is, in this watch, he? he's, he's got long hair, wearing a robe, young. Yeah. And I think he's meant to be a prefiguration of, of, of Jesus. You know, he's, he's God in the God the Son mode rather than God the Father mode. Mm. Um, but he's just created Adam and then, and, then he's, and he's just created Eve as well. So he's sort of, as it were, holding Eve by the hand in this beautiful sort of typical boshy paradise. Um, and, he's, and, and Adam's looking up at her. And there's, a, there's a, always quite a lot made. Can, can I turn a page on my big book yes, in front yes, of you? Yes, yes, we've got this wonderful facsimile <laughs> that you put out in, in front of us. I'm going to turn which... a page to show you this in close-up, this, this yeah. scene of Adam and Eve. Yep. Yeah, because it's the introduction of, of Eve to Adam in a way, isn't it? Once she's come from his rib. Exactly, she's <laughs> oh, come from his that, rib. Yeah. Um, and so she's... now we've got it We've got it very enlarged. <laughs> uh, and you really can see the Jesus feet, the, 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 the appearance of Jesus in the face of God there. You very can. youthful, dressed in pink. He is. Pink being that vibrant colour that runs throughout. Beard, long hair. But, yeah. um Yes, and Adam's sort of sitting there looking rather bemused, but, but he's sort of staring across at Eve. But Eve is the figure here. Mm. I mean, look at look at her. I mean, she's voluptuous. She's got her eyes downcast. And she's got, what has she got? She's got all that hair. She's golden stunning, isn't hair. she? My goodness. I mean, in all of art, uh, well, men, as it were, had the brush. Um, and, and, and we were in a sort of masculine tradition. In all of art, blonde hair, long blonde hair on a woman always meant temptation and wildness oh well that's why i'm so innocent looking yes <laughs> with yes. my you've got raven the, hair with your raven hair you are you are a innocent you are downright nunnish in your presence yes <laughs> but yes yeah, so but this the, is a voluptuousness in that case so she's supposed to be seductive desirable right. she's desirable mm. she is desirable and of course she is therefore the 
the the personage who is about to bring our downfall. Because the whole thing about the paradise myth is that, um, you know, when we are in paradise, we live forever. Mm. All we had to do is reach up and pick an apple of the tree and from a tree we'd, we'd be happy. You know, our, our lives were perfect. Yeah. And they would be perfect to this very day if... Eve hadn't tempted Adam if he hadn't fallen yeah. and if we hadn't got thrown out. Though this is the the great paradigm. You know, the Genesis myth is the myth that drives so much art and so much thinking uh, up until the 17th and 18th centuries. You know, people were obsessed with this idea that women were the reason w w why we'd been chucked out of paradise. We and wonder why the church had a, a sort of misogynistic structure. But it's absolutely, I mean, it's a fundamental concept at the basis of Christianity that women tempted men that women are in 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 so many ways the sinful equivalent to man aren't they yes the reason why we are not in paradise is because of women and although the actual Genesis story tells us that all Eve really did was pluck a fruit from the tree of knowledge I think you know nudge nudge wink wink we all know what really happened between Adam and Eve don't we <laughs> and certainly that's what art spent 500 years of itself of its history trying to imagine mm -hmm. so you know at the heart of this picture at the heart of the whole triptych is this beginning mm. is this storyline where we would have been in paradise and there's a lovely life. if you look around the rest of this opening panel you know you've got this fantastic giraffe which incidentally pops up all over art of the yeah. period same giraffe because it all came from a pattern book and Piero de Cosimo uses it in one of his pictures I even saw one the other day in a Bellini picture uh, oh, really? in Venice it's exactly the same giraffe they copied it they copied it yes <laughs> so one giraffe that got passed from artist to artist and they kept using the same one but um it, it, this is such a fascinating scene because apart from the Adam and Eve, there's a couple of things I want to draw your attention to. Yeah. One is the tree that mm. they're standing under, right? This is the, you know, the, the tree obviously appears quite a lot mm. um, in, um, in, in all views of paradise because Eve was supposed to have plucked a fruit from the tree of knowledge. So you sort of imagine that to be the tree. But in this case, it's a kind of weird yucca looking tree, quite a strange thing, which of course apart from anything else tells us that we are now at a time when uh, the world was being discovered and that all kinds of geographers were setting out across the seas and coming back from america coming back from uh, exotic places bringing back extraordinary things mm. um and paradise itself you know was perhaps across the seas you know perhaps they had found paradise and when they brought back the first pineapple to europe imagine imagine being a, a grubby person living in in flanders in 1450 in a, in a field full of sort of cows and mud <laughs> and someone brings you a pineapple heaven you know? heaven exactly so th this idea that somehow paradise was out there was being reinforced by by the history of the times mm. and this actual tree in fact comes from the canary islands I, it took me an awful long time to find it when i was doing my film I went around all the yuccas, all the succulents I could think of, trying to find this particular tree. And I finally found that it's, hey, it's what's called... Image of it. I've got one here, yeah. Oh, look at that. So it's a photo of it. It's what's called a dragon blood tree. That is exactly what is depicted here. It's a dragon blood tree. They come from the Canary Islands. And the thing about them is that when you cut them, they're called dragon blood trees because they a bright red juice pours out really? like blood. So what this tree is doing here is prefiguring the death of Jesus. And I think that the reason why Jesus, or rather God, looks so much like Jesus is because over his shoulder is this reminder of the fact that he is going to have to die on the cross for us to save us from all the original sin that is about to be committed by these two at the front who couldn't lay off each other. This is amazing. This is this is the beauty, I think, of studying this sort of art is... is 
iconographic analysis where you can create these these connections, these these meanings that are unfolding. And you're, I think you're absolutely right that this is a prefiguration of the cross, uh, memento mori for everybody. But um, but then you've got this wonderful fruitfulness, the grapes that are sort of hanging off there as well, a yeah. sign of the Eucharist, perhaps that, that's saving. Indeed. Yes, you've got the some, rabbits. The rabbits. They've always been famous for the same thing. Yeah. But the other thing I want to draw your attention to again, it's not mentioned often enough in discussions of Bosch. This weird structure in the middle, right? Can you see that black hole in the middle of the pond? Yes. So in the middle of the pink structure. Yeah. Yes. There's a sort of blue pond in the middle of it, a pink, weird pink structure, which I'll show you the origins of that as well. Mm. But in the middle, there's a black hole. Do you know what's in the middle of that black hole? Well, I do because I'm a bird fanatic. Ah. <laughs> It's an owl, isn't it? It's an owl. It's an owl, yeah. It's an owl sitting in this dark hole looking at us right there. Now, what's this owl doing in paradise? Well, Bosch, I think, gives us a very, very good clue to that. In one of his most famous drawings, um, I've I've got a reproduction of it here in front of me, and it's it's basically a tree, um, uh, and and, and the tree's grown a weird set of ears. So it's a tree with ears, and the the ground in front, the field in front, has grown all sorts of eyes. So if you imagine loads of eyes in the ground and lots of ears in the trees, and in the middle of the tree, there he is again, the owl. And it's an illustration to um, a, a, a Flemish proverb of the time, the trees have ears. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on linkedin you'll miss out on great candidates like sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com people today and the field has eyes in other words you never know who's listening. You know, whatever you say, whatever you do, you think you're just there doing it, but actually someone's watching. Well, who's watching? The owl. It's the owl. Yeah. The owl in the middle of the darkness. So what does the owl mean? Well, you know, you read a lot of art historians who frankly haven't read enough of the Bible, um, and they'll say that there's all kinds of, oh, the owl's a lovey-dovey creature, it's this and that, but it isn't. In art, the owl is a creature of the night. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got another picture here I want to show you because I think this this backs up yes. my point here. Um, this is by somebody called the Hartford Master, who is um, a still-life painter in Baroque Rome, often thought to be Caravaggio, because we don't really know who he was. But um, he was uh, famous for these exotic and, and spooky still-lives. And the one I'm showing you um, has about 120 dead birds in it, all yeah. lined up, different kinds of birds, you know, barn owls, chaffinches, all sorts. But there's one live bird 
lurking at the back. Yeah. And it's an owl with yeah. the yellow eyes. Because the owl is, of course, Satan. The owl is the, is the presence of Satan. Around at night, yeah. fluttering when you don't think it's looking, it's there. It swoops soundlessly towards you. Sin is always lurking, even in paradise. Mm -hmm. So whereas other artists painted paradise with Satan as a snake who, who tempts Eve, Bosch, in, with typical inventiveness, has painted him as a lurking presence, the owl in the middle of the picture. So, you know, this sets the agenda for the whole thing. You know, we, we, we could have had paradise. Unfortunately, Satan was there lurking in his, in his cubby hole in the back. So um, we went on to do other things. Uh, which takes us to the heart of the painting and, of course, the most famous part of it, the middle. The middle bit, yeah, the, the largest section. Yes. Uh, I mean, obviously, you could see the, the the themes and the ideas are being continued and particularly the colour palette is mm. being <laughs> extended. This pink is so uh, distinctive, isn't it? Um, yeah. I read somewhere that, that wherever you see the pink, that's supposed to symbolise the the, the godly, the divine. Is that something you've come across? No, I don't think it's anything no. like that at all. But actually, if you actually, I mean, if we line up our two sections here, if I put to the left-hand panel right next to the right-hand panel, yep. you'll see that the landscapes actually match up. So it's the same place. Yep. So that the, the line along the top where the mountains are continues from paradise into the Garden of Earthly Delights panel. Even the um, pool of water does, doesn't it? Even the pool of water down. does. Yeah. So what we're doing is we're staying in the same place, but we're moving through time. So this is what happened then, and then look what happened in Paradise once the sin had been committed. Yep. So this middle scene, which takes place in this fantastical landscape. Um, now, you mentioned these, these strange pink constructions. I mean, one of the reasons we love um, Bosch is because they're these things that, that seem completely impossible for the times are popping up all over all over the land. I mean, strange little pink palaces. I mean, in my film, I, I said that they look a bit like Disneyland. They do. <laughs> There's something of, of Cinderella's palace, isn't there? Absolutely. And also, them? I suppose, just completely unlike anything else you see in art at this time. They are unique, I think, to him, aren't they? They are. They are, but but again, you know, the, one of the wonders of filmmaking. Uh, there, there I was thinking, where on earth could any of that come from? So then I went to this church, the the great cathedral of Saint John in Surtekenbosch, and I found this font, which I'm going to show you a photo Should of I as well. Okay. So this is a photo of the the baptismal font that was installed in 1490 mm. um, in the uh, in the cathedral that that Bosch went to, um, and if you look at it, it's it's round, weird round shape held up by other other weird shapes. It's sort of gothic spire that goes up into the peculiar forms up above. It's quite unlike any shape you've you've ever seen before because it's a mixture of the sort of the pointy and the round. Mm. Um, and I don't think it I don't think it is being too far fetched to right. see if you, if you then look at the equivalent, as it were, weird sculptures in the Bosch to see echoes of the font that was installed at exactly that time in the cathedral. Well, I think symbolically that completely works because here you've presumably got the fountain of life that this is. And in fact, what happens with every baptism is you're, you're supposedly brought back to life. It's, so the font is a miniature version of the fountain of life. So for him to have expanded the font of his own cathedral in his scene of paradise makes complete sense. Indeed. Yeah. And of course it takes us straight back to water. 
Water's the other big thing that's going on here. If we if we remember the outside again, as you so rightly said, you've got the earth being created out of water. There's always been some controversy that it might even indeed represent the flood. In other words, the moment when the earth was washed over by this almighty flood that God sent down to punish us for our sins. Um, but water has this dual identity in, in, in Christianity. It is both the source of baptism, where um, we, we enter the church and are, and are cleansed of our sins, but it's also this prefiguration of the flood. And you know that line that we read at the beginning, um, he, he spoke and it was done. You know, that's from the, pro the, the Psalms. And I think that the Psalms, the mood of the Psalms, the rhythm of the Psalms, is what anybody who really wants to understand Bosch, that's what they should read. Because it's in the Psalms that you get this, this ev evocation of the world, as this strange place in which the waters flowed and in which man does this that's wrong and all that. And these beasts come up who, you know, you can reach in every fruit and there are giant fruits. And if you, if you read them carefully, there isn't a single image in the Garden of Earthly Delights that couldn't be associated with a line from the Psalms. Mm. And all these places that are described in there, this kind of fantastical places, um, have their echo in this. And I think the waters... Although they are, as it were, as you so rightly said, um, a kind of baptismal water, um, I think there is also this sort of prefigurative element too of, of the flood, of, of of this kind of oncoming punishment for our sins. Isn't there also a, a sexual element as well? In as much as I'm thinking now of my medieval um, images of the months, the month of love is is May, and you always see the lovers in a bath in in water, and there's that idea because I think what we we should probably say is by the time we get to the middle panel the paradise is starting to to shred around the edges slightly isn't it there's big it's not overtly there's nothing no actual copulation taking place but there's some questionable imagery here isn't there what's different about this one then well there's um it's a party isn't it and there's this <laughs> the world has gone mad you know um yes it's it's packed packed with well with with couples basically yeah. the, the two main things you get in the in in the details of the central panel is lots of weird animals and that's just a line from the psalms there's a line in the psalms about how paradise was filled with irrational animals and how the animals and the and and the, and the human beings came out of the waters and mm. you know so th this is as it were a few a few millennia later <laughs> you know we, we we were chucked out of paradise this is our earth it's still the same place but we've started to enjoy ourselves too much. Mm. So although there isn't any actual copulation in this, because of course you couldn't show that. No, I no, mean, no. you're not going to put scenes of copulation in a church. <laughs> in a church. In a church. Also, yeah. But it's implied all over the place. I yeah. mean, there are people hugging. There's a there's some lots of illicit um, or, or, or supposedly illicit combinations of of, 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 of sort of hairy men and, mm. and naked women, um, black people and white people mm. commingling, which um, I don't, you know, I don't, think that was necessarily regarded as the best thing to be happening in the world at the time um there's there's this mad sort of party on horseback going on in the middle which is like a kind of rodeo in which lots of people are riding animals in a circle and its mood is the mood of, of something like a sort of Bruegel peasant fair mm. where everybody's drunk too much and now they're all having this um wild time well again you've got the contrast the male and female in this is also yes. intriguing isn't it because the Central pool is full of females. Yeah. Well, I think you've got this circle 
potentially of men looking into it and the idea that um, it, there's almost a tension that that will lead, that this is sort of the, the preamble to sex, isn't it? Yes. This is the suggestion here. Yes, indeed. And and um, most recent research on Bosch has has come to the conclusion that, that his pictures are essentially about, uh, about the most serious sins. Mm-hmm. And, of course, lust was the most serious of all of them because it's traceable back to the very beginning right. you know the very first sin the original sin the one that got us kicked out of heaven um was the sin of lust by adam and i think that's what's going on here i think ultimately what is happening here is we are seeing lust taking hold of humanity in paradise um and we are watching what happens when we start to lose our self-control when we start to sin mm-hmm. and not just us you know the animal kingdom as well is at it you know these massive birds and strange creatures all over the place um reproducing like crazy but also i suppose um contorting and confounding the order of nature yes. uh, you know the oversized birds and the miniature humans this is not nature in its right state is it it's- no it isn't but again it's 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 nature as described in the psalms mm. You know, if you read the Psalms, then they're all full of descriptions of, of weird animals and, and, and incongruous shapes. Um, but it is it is it's things starting to go wrong. It's it's things starting to hybridize, um, and the proper order is 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 being slowly corrupted by the behaviour of, of of all these living things in here. Um, and one way or another, the mutations that you see, um, the 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 cross pollinations, all the strange stuff that's going on there, all the sort of randy behaviour. It's all the sign of what happened to the earth once we had sinned. And and, and it's both a, a prefiguration of where we could be, but also I think a kind of warning. There's a lovely detail in the bottom right. I don't know if you can see that here, but um, there's a kind of figure coming out of a cave and um, he's pointing to a woman and she's in a sort of glass bowl. Yes. Um, and the glass bowls are everywhere because they're like the glass bowl on the outside. I think I think they're sort of an attempt to see creation as an alchemical process. Yes. So the alchemists made stuff in glass bowls. It's because those almost even look like test tubes, don't they? They are. They're, they're, they're test yeah. tubes. They're weird bowls. And I think you know Bosch saw creation uh, as, as a parallel to the nearest thing to creation around him at the time, which was the alchemists. You know, they, were, they were making stuff out of tubes and they were saying they could do all this miraculous stuff with, with Bunsen burners. and uh, So there's a lot of glass in the yes. Garden of Earthly Delights. Fragile, rather beautiful glass, wonderfully painted. People sort of emerging in it as if they're in a bubble. Well, there's um, this wonderful couple up here, aren't, isn't there, that are both inside the bubble. They are. Um, I mean, that's there's even a half sort of umbrella of glass there. But yeah. there's also this sense of both containment and potential to burst out. So I think it's quite moral as well, isn't it? That they yes, are... yes, it is. But it's also, I think, I think it is. A, you know, the glass is a kind of delivery system. Yeah. This is how we appear on Earth. I mean, there's a the detail that we've got in front of us of the middle panel or you can see a hedgehog or a porcupine mm-hmm. he's arriving on earth in a kind of glass bubble too and again you know this all this all relates to the the first image on the outside of the garden of earthly delights of the giant crystal ball yeah um, it's 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 you know the delivery system by which god put us on earth was these sort of beautiful delicate glass bubbles 
you know, where we arrived on Earth, like like you know, like those things you get when you're a kid when you blow all the bubbles on a on a sort of soap stick. That that's that's how we're arriving here. Wonderful. And let me Everyone just... pops and ends up on the on the Earth. Yeah. Yeah. Look, look, he's coming out in there. But he's this. Out of it. Yes, this is our, our so bit I've, of the test. Tubes. I've opened it out, and this is this is the scene, as I said, which is figure sort of coming out of a cave, and he's pointing at a, a woman inside this glass test tube. And in fact, there's another bird in a test tube looking on at them. But that's the that's supposed to be Hieronymus Bosch, they say. So mm. in other words, the little the little man coming out, they say it's a self-portrait. Uh, if it is, and it, 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 and it certainly looks at us in the right kind of way to be a self-portrait, mm. you know, it's a little face that in all this chaos comes out of the busy figures and seems somehow to connect with us. He's looking at yeah. us as if he's trying to draw our attention to him. And what's he doing? He's pointing at a woman. Um, the woman's naked. She's just been created. She's in one of these sort of glass glass test tubes, um, and she's holding an apple, isn't she? Yeah. And he's pointing at her as if as if to say, "This is what it all goes back to." Um, and I think I think that's exactly what that is meant to mean. Actually, I think I think this is Bosch just reminding us in this little detail of the bigger the picture fall. here. Absolutely. This is Eve fall. with the apple having fallen and that it's actually this is what's what's taking place in front of us and that it should be a warning. And I mean I think again our modern eyes see it as surreal, see it as as uncomfortable, bizarre. I think the contemporary eyes that would have looked on this would have seen it, as you said, as a warning that that this might all look delightful and fruitful and indulgent. But of course, it prefigures what is going to come in the last panel, and that is hell, isn't it? Exactly. And uh, it's all connected. So hell, I suppose, is the bit that people like to zoom in on. <laughs> yes. There are some bizarre things going on here. I love the oversized instruments. You said something about music earlier and the um, illustrious brotherhood, and that fascinated me because I think one of the arguments here is that actually the senses are what let us down in terms of sins. You've got massive oversized ears. You've got the instruments here as a sign of, of um, giving in to your sensations and your lusts, I suppose. How do you see these oversized objects in the hell scene? Yes, I mean, uh, you know, Bosch is the greatest painter of hell there's ever been. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of imagining this ghastly end to it all for us, no one has done it as as energetically, <laughs> as inventively, as brilliantly, as as, as spine tinglingly as as Bosch. Yeah, um, yeah music, uh, although um, although it has this other other side, which is that you know. It creates beautiful melodies in churches for the psalms, etc. It's also the stuff that when you play at parties with a with a pint of beer, it leads people astray. Okay. And I mean, the the Vatican was under no doubt at all at the time as to how dangerous music was. I mean, there was a point at which um, during Holy Week at Easter, the Vatican banned music, any kind of music, you know, was banned from from happening. I mean, you know, we see this happening in the world right now, don't we? In certain societies where where music is seen to be this potential force for for decadence, um, you know. You, you have a drink and you have some music and next thing you know people are committing the original sin again rock and roll yeah, yeah. so <laughs> these gigantic musical instruments i think are unquestionably there because they are part of the reason why we couldn't resist um the temptations and there we are in hell mm. so um uh, all this monstrous stuff that's happening um the the the, the weird 
pig shapes that are eating people up, the monsters, the distortions in scale, the fires, the burning. I mean, I, I don't know about you, Janina, but I, you know, I, I was brought up as a, as, a, as a Polish Catholic. I went mm -hmm. to Polish Catholic boarding school. Um, and I remember we used to have to go to mass every damn day. Because uh, you did every day. I only had to do every week. Uh, <laughs> you had it harder. <laughs> every day. Well, you remember the sermons. Yeah. You know, you remember what hell is meant to be. You know, I, I can, to this day, remember those feelings of having a hell described to me, the fire, the brimstone, the suffering. Mm. You know, that's the mood of these scenes. This is this is proper gloves-off, threatening imagery that shows you what you're heading into mm. um, if you don't repent and behave properly. See, I think I, we had we had a similar upbringing in that respect because mine was Irish, Polish, Catholic household. But mm. I remember all those sermons. It wasn't until my mum brought home a book of Bosch that I could really make sense of all those images of hell because this to me is hellish. And the reason I think it's so hellish is because of the inversion of nature. It's the it's just the the perversity of some of these inversions, the the creature that's enthroned with the huge blue abdomen that's eating humans and then excreting them into this horrible pit of vomit and bile. And I mean, that's just so uncomfortable. Um, and yet it's accompanied by your more, like you say, the landscape is quite traditional fire and brimstone, burning buildings. Then there's this strange egg-shaped character in the middle. of That's always confused and, and fascinated me what do you see it as yes it is confusing and it's the one people always pick out as a possible self-portrait don't they mm. he's got he's looking at us again with that self-portraity look um I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was an element of that in it mm. um a, a, some sort of sense in which bosch is positioning himself in hell and of course the first thing to say about it is that it's black yeah. you know when you when you consider what everything else in this in this triptych is like there's beautiful pinks and mm. blues and greens and there's wonderful sort of optimistic and slightly slightly uh, you know opal fruity color scheme <laughs> suddenly it all gets black <laughs> um and in even in these cinematic terms you know the sure the sheer color symbolism of it immediately drags you into this other world and yes i mean within it there are these i mean fantastically invented weird forms eggs that turn into trees you know faces that become um that, that, that become animals but again I, you know when i was doing all the work on it there's a lot of stuff here that can be can be can be decoded yeah. properly. I mean, the, the the giant ears with a sword. I mean, above the monstrous Hieronymus Bosch barrel figure, there are just some huge ears and a sword. Well, there's a line in the Psalms about about how well, what you hear um, comes at you like a sword. Yeah. Also, you know, there, there, there are if, if if someone was ever to go through the entire Bible. Um, picking up little phrases that describe things, I reckon that they could match them up with oh, everything in agree. here. And if, if they're not in the Bible, they're going to be in, like I said earlier, yeah. in folklore. Because even the the bagpipes that are sort of above the head of the possible Hieronymus Bosch portrait yeah. egg figure, those bagpipes that's a traditional phallic symbol. And and you know, folk tales talking about that that idea of of the phallus excreting with the the pipe. I mean that is that is maybe not in the Bible, <laughs> but yeah. it's certainly in common knowledge. It's not something yeah. that he's just invented. He's sourced it from somewhere. Um, and I think that's the thing we, we we sort of put. There is a lot of originality in how Bosch executes his work, but their ideas here can be found elsewhere. It's not completely the ravings of a unique mad mind. Um, so even some of the punishments in hell, we see them in 
tympanums in, in the entrance to churches, Indeed. don't we? And in other Bosch paintings. And in other Bosch paintings. Yeah. But these are the seven deadly sins. These are the things that happen to you in hell. They're just done in a, in a very unusual way by him. Yes. I mean, stylistically, no one had done it this way before. Yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, you, you could, you could. I mean, other artists have been down this territory and, and they've, other people have painted ghastly hells, um, but no one did it quite with that lovely oil painty reality hyper realism this is it this is it and you see you know they're painted on oak these panels and uh, something that we should never forget is that is that you know when when those flemish artists started using oil paints on wood it it made everything glow you know that the, the, the garden of earthly delights could almost be a light box the way it seems to sort of glow from behind it's a very different effect from what you get when you paint on a canvas with a bigger brush yeah. you know uh, that that seems more sort of faded part of is part of a of a softer hole whereas these fantastic scenes on wooden panels you know they glow with this immediacy that 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 has a visceral effect on you and if i just to repeat you know when you when you go to the garden of earthly delights and you take that gray opening yeah. of the first scene of the outer panels and you open it and inside is this full color thing that glows like that I mean, that's just a, a physical experience that is bloody exciting. <laughs> I've heard it described as like a like a eight a cinema that just unfolds before you as it opens. And I think the scale as well, we're talking metres high, metres wide. This is widescreen. This is um, the, the detail. The reason that Bosch works so well in close-up is because it is so detailed in its in its execution, isn't it? Yes. Every little part of these panels speaks and yeah. tells you something. It's bottomless. Yeah, when we were filming it, we were in there for five hours and we didn't finish. We weren't even close to finishing. I know, well, we've you been know. talking for 45 minutes and <laughs> we haven't even started, have we? Yeah. Um, there's just so much to say. I think we'll have to come back and do some more Bosch, won't we? But I think that the... The Garden of Earthly Delights is is one of these images that you, you have to get, really scroll around, look around. When you're listening to this podcast, I hope you're able to to use the image that's embedded with it and really, really zoom in, get get the detail and some of the real highlights from, from these images. Thank you so much, Valdemar. This has been amazing. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. You can subscribe at historyhit.com slash artdetective. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm Dr. Janina Ramirez. You can also follow Valdemar. You are? I am Januszczak, I'm afraid. Capital letters. <laughs> J-A-N-U-S-Z-C-Z-A-K at. <laughs> there you go. And he's brilliant on Twitter. Wonderful to follow. So uh, lots of exciting things to look forward to from you in the future. I know you're working on Mary Magdalene and other wonderful... Yes, yes. Programs. A big Mary Magdalene film which is coming out hopefully this year um, and uh, another series on abstract expressionism. You know, art there's nothing better to make films about nothing better to talk about it's the future it's the future it's the future thank you so much for joining me on the podcast it's been wonderful mom 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.